The Old Testament lesson comes from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 64, verses 1 through 9. We read in Jesus' name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who was unclean and all our righteous deeds like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord. And remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Father, these are your words. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah prayed for the Lord to come. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. This is a surprising prayer because Isaiah knows full well who God is. He knows that the Lord is powerful, just, and holy. And he still prays for him to come. He prays that the mountains might quake at your presence. This is a rare thing. People might ask to see God. They ask for him to come. But when he does, they sometimes wish he hadn't. We just don't realize how godlike God is. In Exodus, Moses asked to see the Lord, but God knew it would be too much for him, so he allowed him to see his back, but not his face. Or I think of Peter when he began to realize that Jesus really is God in human flesh. They were in Peter's fishing boat, and Jesus gave him a miraculously large catch of fish. Peter was overcome by the powerful presence of God, so he begged Jesus to go away. He couldn't handle being in the presence of someone so terrifyingly powerful. He said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. But here, Isaiah prays for the Lord to come down in power. He wants the heavens to be split open, the mountains to quake, and all the nations to tremble at his presence. And Isaiah is not naive to his own sin or the sin of the people. He says, behold, you are angry and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? He still prays for the Lord to come in power. Isaiah had also seen the glory of the Lord, perhaps more than anyone else, even more than Moses. In chapter 6 of Isaiah, when God called him to be a prophet, Isaiah saw a vision of the Lord on his throne in heaven. It was a terrifying experience. Isaiah reacted the way most people would. He said, woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. But God took his sin away. 
At his calling, Isaiah experienced that the power and glory of the Lord is not a danger to those who trust in him. But God uses his power to save, and he is actually powerful to remove our sin. Isaiah knew that God's righteous power is a huge threat to sin, but not to those sinners who trust in him. So Isaiah prays that God would use his mighty power to save his people from their sins. Isaiah has a complete understanding of sin. Too often we have a narrow view of sin. We think of it only as the bad things that we do, but it's more than that. There is both an active and a passive side of sin, and I'll explain what I mean. The active side of sin is the evil stuff we do. It's when we learn the Ten Commandments along with their full meanings, but we still disobey them. We fear, love, or trust in something besides the one true God. We don't call upon his name in every time of need. We don't take rest in his word. We dishonor our parents or other authorities. We harm or hate our fellow man. We lust after someone or commit some other kind of sexual immorality. We steal, slack off at work, or gain something in a dishonest way. We lie, gossip, or slander our neighbor. Or we covet something or someone that God has not given to us. The active side of sin is that we think, say, and do things that are evil. We also neglect to do the good things that God has commanded of us. And if you are anything like me, that's how you usually think of sin. But that's only one side of it. There's also a passive side of sin. That is, sin is something that happens to us. And I do not mean the sins that other people commit against us. I mean that sin, our nature of being sinful, is something that happens to us. We did not choose to be sinful. It happened to us. We were born this way. You and I did not do anything to become sinful, and we cannot do anything to stop being sinful. Sin is a powerful and oppressive force upon us. So there's an active side of sin and a passive side of sin. In theology, we call this actual sin and original sin. Original sin comes first. It is inherited from our first parents, Adam and Eve, and it leads us to commit actual sins. The point of this distinction is not to get us off the hook. Our sinful nature wants to take the doctrine of original sin and say, see, it's not my fault. We're tempted to appeal to this doctrine to make us less guilty, but that's not what it does. The doctrine of original sin makes us more guilty. It reveals that we are worse than we thought. If we think of sin only in terms of our actual sins, or even mostly in that way, we're being blinded by pride. If we think that our problem is merely the bad stuff we do, then we should be able to fix the problem by just being better. But that overestimates our moral strength, and it's prideful. One of the negative effects of this incomplete view of sin is that it causes us to hide from God. If I'm capable of turning this heart around, then I'm going to want to hide from God until I get it cleaned up. Someday in the future, when I've gotten my sin more under control, that would be a better time for God to visit. We hide from God because... In our pride, we think that we can improve. But when we consider and accept the reality of original sin and that we are passive recipients of sin, then we know that we can't clean ourselves up. There won't be some better time in the future for God to come and visit us. 
At this point, we realize that we are oppressed by sin, and we are powerless to free ourselves. We don't need a God who approves of us if we clean ourselves up, because that will never happen. Instead, we need a God to save us from that sin. Instead of his power being a threat to us, his power is our only chance at salvation. It's the difference in perspective between oppressors and the oppressed. Now, in regards to sin, we are both oppressors and the oppressed. According to actual sin, we are the oppressors. That is, we think, say, and do evil. We harm other people. But according to original sin, we are all oppressed by sin. And original sin comes first. We are oppressed by sin before we become the oppressors. And the oppressors and the oppressed have different perspectives on power. When oppressors run into a righteous power, they see it as a threat. But when the oppressed see that same righteous power, they see it as their salvation. The righteous power of God comes to break the oppression of sin. Jesus comes to break the oppression of sin. This is the way Isaiah understands sin in this passage. He acknowledges his own sin and the sin of the people. He says, Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Isaiah clearly understands how bad we are. Our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Even the things that we look at and think are pretty good, when compared to God's holy righteousness, those things are filthy. You might think God is overly harsh to see our good deeds that way. But God is the only one who sees things how they really are, and that is how he describes it. So Isaiah clearly understands how sinful we are, but he does not hide from God. He does the opposite. He begs God to come. Because Isaiah also sees clearly that we are oppressed by sin. He says our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. We're caught, we're oppressed, we have as much power against sin as a leaf has against the wind. We don't just need God to save us in spite of our sin, we need him to save us from our sin. Isaiah acknowledges his own sin and the sin of his people, and he prays that God would come down in power to free them from it. We all must acknowledge that we are oppressed by sin. And this isn't about excusing ourselves for our actual sins. We have no excuse. It's about acknowledging that we are powerless against this great force, and we need a strong and righteous God to deliver us. So God comes. This is what the season of Advent is all about. Advent is just a fancy Latin word that means coming. Our God comes to us, and he comes to save. There are three aspects of Advent. The easy way to remember them is as past, present, and future. Jesus came to save, he still comes to save, and he will come again to save. The first advent was when Jesus came in the flesh of a fetus. 
the mighty and eternal Son of God assumed human flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He appeared weak. He was tiny. He was born in poverty. But all the power of God was veiled in that flesh. And he used that power to obediently suffer everything that humans suffer, including death. It looked like weakness in our eyes, especially when he suffered death on a cross as a condemned and despised criminal. It looked like weakness, but in reality, it was God's greatest exercise of power. Because in Jesus' death, he swallowed up sin and death. He broke the oppression that sin has on us. As proof of this, he was raised from the dead. Death, which is the consequence of sin, could not hold Jesus in death. He rose triumphantly. That was his first advent. We also look to the future when Jesus will come again in glorious majesty. This is when the nations will tremble at his presence. We who have trusted in him and waited for him will appear with him in glory. Our faith and our suffering will all be vindicated. If we die before that day, our bodies will be raised from the dead. And whether we remain alive or are raised on that day, our bodies and souls will be transformed into the perfect image of God which was corrupted by the fall into sin, but perfectly restored in Jesus Christ. We will enter into God's new creation, and we will live in perfect righteousness and bliss for all eternity. That is Jesus' future advent. We wait for it and pray for it to come. While we wait, Jesus comes to us now through his word and sacraments. He comes in mercy so that we will be prepared to stand with him when he comes in glory. Jesus is the word made flesh. As we hear his word now, we receive him. He is present here to forgive our sins. And he comes to us in baptism. We take scripture literally when it says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? This is no mere symbol, but you have actually been joined to Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. And Jesus comes to us in the Lord's Supper. We take him literally when he says, this is my body, this is my blood. And we believe Paul when he says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. It cannot be a mere symbol because to misuse it is to actually misuse the body and blood of Jesus. Many of our Christian brothers, you might know, see the Lord's Supper as a mere symbol. They say that it cannot be the true body and blood of Jesus because Jesus ascended into heaven and is at the right hand of the Father. They say he can't be there and here at the same time. This is wrong thinking. Jesus has a human nature, but the human nature does not limit his divine nature. Instead, the divine nature empowers his human nature. He is capable of doing, as both God and man, everything that God is capable of doing. If God is omnipotent, then so is Jesus. So we believe him when he says, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And we look for those ways that he promises to be with us. Now, of course, Jesus is capable of being present in the Lord's Supper, and not just spiritually, but physically with his body and blood. But remember, it is not just because Jesus can be present that we believe this. 
God can do many things that he does not promise. He does not promise to be present if we use cranberry juice and oatmeal, but he promises to be present in the forms of bread and wine. Jesus took bread and he said, this is my body. He took a cup of wine and said, this is my blood. And he commanded us to continue this sacrament. The word of God is powerful to do what it says. But it is not powerful to do things that it does not say. So we do not look for him in whatever things we invent, but we cling to what the word of God commands and promises. Jesus comes to you in the Lord's Supper. If we truly grasp the magnitude of this, we might be frightened to come and meet Jesus here. And we should fear. This is the God at whose presence the mountains quake and the nations tremble. Sinners tremble in his presence because he is the destroyer of sin. There are different kinds of fear. There's the kind of fear that hides from God and never wants him to come. And there is Isaiah's kind of fear, which sees things how they really are. So he begs for the fearsome God to come and save us. If our sin were something that we could clean up, then maybe we should do that before coming to the Lord's Supper. Maybe then God would be less fearsome. But sin is an oppressor, and we cannot free ourselves from it. The power of God to destroy sin is our only hope. So fear and come, because the only thing you have to lose is sin. Amen. Now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.